It's Tuesday, December 25th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A story on MSNBC caught my eye. Not just a story, a terribly written story, but also a quite popular story. Second most popular yesterday, fallen third most popular today. Our story in question is titled, Each Child Left Behind. The racism in this blue state can be illustrated with one infuriating statistic. Get it? Each child left behind. A play on no child left behind, but in our dystopian present, there is not a single child that's not being left behind. This does raise the philosophical question. If no child advances and they're all being left behind, can any child be said to be left behind? It doesn't matter. I just extended more thought on that throwaway doom fodder than anyone involved in its crafting. But what about the one infuriating statistic? I want to be infuriated by racism. Tell me the statistic. Well, there it is in the subhead of the article, quote, Latinos in Massachusetts face the greatest risk of winding up in foster care in Massachusetts than they do in any other state. Latinos in Massachusetts face the greatest risk of winding up in foster care in Massachusetts than they do in any other state, as opposed to Latinos in Massachusetts ending up in foster care in Wisconsin, Oregon. Maybe Guam, that would be racist. It would be terribly inconvenient, at least. No, that is not what the article means. It means that if you're a Latino kid in Massachusetts, you have more of a chance of winding up in foster care than if you're a Latino kid in Wisconsin, Oregon, or anywhere else. But is that racist? Massachusetts is a high-tax state. It has much better, more expansive government services than most every other state. So a child there is much less likely to fall through the cracks. And I, having listened to this segment on WBUR's On Point, a Massachusetts radio show, by the way, thought the problem was lack of foster care. The U.S. foster care system is broken. The number of licensed foster homes dropped last year in more than half of states. But the report on MSNBC is telling me the problem is too much foster care, specifically for Latinos in Massachusetts. I get it. If you get into the foster care system, it often has negative outcomes, though they haven't done great studies about similarly situated or let us call them deserving kids who are not put in foster care. You know, if foster care hurt the kind of kids who needed foster care more than not being in foster care, they should just do away with foster care, and that's not a good idea. Anyway, I didn't understand much of this, so I read on, encountering sentences like the following. Across the country, the bigger issue in the foster care system is the overrepresentation of black children, who are 22% of the U.S. foster child population, despite representing only 14% of the total child population. The Children's Defense Fund notes that the American Indian slash Alaska Native children are also, quote, dramatically overrepresented, even though they represent just 1% of the overall child population, they represent 2% of the foster care population. But wouldn't the relative statistic not just be the overall percentage of these populations? Wouldn't it be the things like economic or social indicators? Let's look at income. Let's look at How many two-family homes? Let's look at abuse in the homes or arrest in the homes. Foster care is the state stepping in to offer a safety net for children that don't have enough resources. Now, the article goes on to note that the state's, Massachusetts state's, under 17-year-old population is 20%, but the foster care population is 34%. Okay, but the article also says... 
The Latino poverty rate in Massachusetts, 19.9%, is twice the state's overall poverty rate. So in one way, Latinos are overrepresented in foster care, but compared to poverty, they're, if anything, underrepresented. Of course, poverty isn't abuse. It doesn't mean abuse. But the foster care system is for children whose parents can't provide for them, who lack resources and lacking economic resources is a contributing factor. Also, if you're drug addicted or totally absent as a parent, that would result and show up as extreme poverty. MSNBC thinks the opposite, writing, Some of the people who believe themselves to be seeing signs of neglect or abuse are seeing signs of poverty. A simpler way to express this is poverty is often mistaken for abuse. But I'm not here to rhetorically nitpick. I have a fundamental complaint about the meaning that the MSNBC story is trying to convey. Because this entire piece which I truly had a tough time understanding on first read, is simply a rewrite of a Boston Globe article, in fact, an editorial and an article, but rewriting it through an anti-racist lens, an often incomprehensibly anti-racist lens. The Globe's piece is actually good. I understand it immediately, and it convinced me this is a problem. Headline, Latino disproportionality in DCF, that's Department of Children and Families, points to need for language access, cultural competency. Subhead, in Massachusetts, Latino children are more overrepresented in foster care than in any other state. That's a little bit of an improvement on Latinos in Massachusetts face the greatest risk of winding up in foster care in Massachusetts. The Globe article begins with a really compelling anecdote about a woman who lost her kids, had a DCF worker who couldn't speak Spanish. She lost her job attending all these DCF sessions. She eventually got her kids back. It seems like just a Kafkaesque nightmare. It's actually really penetrable journalism. It meets the reader who might not be a thousand percent read in on all the latest ideology. MSNBC, on the other hand, writes, people pushing for DEI aren't doing so just to be cool. Not just to be cool, though it is pretty trendy. Here is why DEI is a solve for this problem, according to MSNBC. More than a story about the problems in one state's child protective agency, the Globe story is a reminder of the necessity of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI policies, the same policies that have been maligned as woke by conservatives touting the myth of color blindness. All right. Well, here's a real-world solution that the real reporters of the Boston Globe note. Quote, It might be worth investigating new screening methods. Nassau County, New York, for example, pioneered a system that is spread to other jurisdictions where child removal decisions are made by a committee of child welfare workers who do not know the child's race. And this, not knowing race i.e. colorblindness, has actually improved the outcomes and why it is being touted by the globe as a model for other places to try. MSNBC has six mentions of the need for DEI programs. They have no mentions of the fact that, according to the Globe article, they rewrite, quote, DCF requires cultural humility and sensitivity courses for all social workers, and quote the chief of staff at DCF saying, issues of identity and diversity are central to children's welfare, and it's deeply grounded in our work.
See, he knows DEI is cool. But is it effective? Not in this case. Not like they're doing it. So what should they do? I don't know. Identity? Diversity? How about language? The Globe mentions several times the necessity for DCF workers to speak Spanish when dealing with Spanish people. Of course! It speaks about the need for those making foster care decisions to have cultural competency, not a buzzword, they define it, and they give examples so that we understand what they mean. For instance, an agent with more of an understanding of Latino culture might interpret the use of extended family members or other members of the community to watch children, not as some patchwork suboptimal solution, but as reflecting the normal comfort level Latino families have with those arrangements. The situation in Massachusetts seems like a real problem. Foster care affects Latinos in Massachusetts acutely. I understand that from reading the story, the Boston Globe story. It's something close to a tragedy. Something less than a tragedy, but more than a mere annoyance on a communicative and journalistic level is the MSNBC rewrite of the Boston Globe's work. Infuriating and racist in the headline, slamming conservatives in an article about Massachusetts, deploying buzzwords and defaulting to polarizing rhetoric because you just can't help it, and I guess because it drives traffic. Would a conservative, an actual conservative, not some imagined MSNBC cartoon conservative, oppose reforming the child welfare system in Massachusetts? If they were to read this line in the Globe, quote, a more culturally sensitive child mistreatment reporting system and more resources for people in poverty would help stem the flow of Latino children into the child welfare system, say child advocates and activists from the Latino community. When our conservatives say, let's try that, it sounds less wasteful and more efficient and actually targeting the problem. Obviously, 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 a government agency has to understand its clients. What kind of idiot or cartoon conservative would say that literally not understanding the language the clientele speaks is good governance or even acceptable? I mean, if the language you use can't be understood by the audience, you will never be able to get to an actual solution. Put that in a headline, MSNBC. On the show today, well, let's call that what you just heard a spiel. If you want to, because we're blowing out the regular spiel in favor of an all-interview program, we have on Nathan Thrall, a journalist. He was also once the director of the Arab-Israeli Project at the International Crisis Group. His new book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, is a journalistic achievement that highlights the hardships and deprivations faced by Palestinians in Israel. Thrall is a critic of Israel, whose critiques you will hear I engage with in this two-part interview. Nathan Thrall up next. Nathan Thrall is a journalist who's written one of the most acclaimed nonfiction books of the year, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. He is also an expert. He lives in Jerusalem, and he spent a decade at the International Crisis Group as director of the Arab-Israeli Project. We're going to talk about his book, which is a reflection, an analogy to the entire country and situation, but we're also going to talk explicitly about the entire situation with the war between Hamas and Israel. Nathan, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me. 
I would imagine as a journalist, when you heard the story, you saw it as a story. When did you begin to see it as, as an allegory? Really uh, immediately because um, of the unique um, situation in which these people um, uh, live. You know, they're, it, if, if I could just take a step back for those who haven't read the book, um, the, the book is about a tragic bus accident that took place uh, outside of Jerusalem involving a group of uh, kindergartners. And these uh, kindergartners and their parents and teacher live within the city of Jerusalem, most of them, uh, but on the other side of a 26-foot-tall concrete wall. And they live within uh, an enclave that's surrounded on four sides by walls. And... um, they're living in a state of uh, total neglect. They are paying uh, taxes to the Jerusalem municipality and they're receiving virtually no services. They're burning their trash in the middle of the street. They have no sidewalks, no lanes in their streets. And, um, and it's so bad that even the emergency services won't go in there without an army escort. And so when this accident happened, it happened a little further away from this walled enclave, not within municipal Jerusalem, within the West Bank. I saw it as, um, as you say, as an allegory, as something that encapsulated the entire situation of Israel-Palestine, but also of these hundreds of thousands of people living on the other side of this wall where the Israeli authorities are ignoring them deliberately and the Palestinian Authority is not allowed uh, to enter these areas. So they feel uh, doubly abandoned. And through this accident and the parents and the teachers and the settlers who live nearby and the emergency service providers, I felt that I could actually tell the whole whole Israeli-Palestinian story. And every aspect of the accident is informed by the deprivations of the Palestinian people, the deprivations visited upon them from the fact that the driver was not trained, from the fact that the equipment was not up to snuff, from the very fact that they had to take this long, circuitous, miles-around route to go someplace that should be extremely close if the roads were just open, from the fact that a grieving, desperate father could not even find any information information about his son who wound up being dead because of indifference, but also because of logistical and physical barriers. It's all there. That's right. There is one aspect of the book that I don't think you think maps onto the situation, and it's how tantalizingly close, literally physical proximity, but also metaphorically, how the characters in your book are to getting what they want, to being just feet away or a short distance away, but not being able to get there because of uh, impositions that they can't control. There are times where you literally say, if you could just break down a wall, this guy can at least find find his child or this bus can at least get to where it's going to without exploding. I don't think you think that there are a couple of wall busting down solutions. I'm not making a metaphor about October 7th, but you don't think that there are a couple of simple solutions for the uh, Israel-Arab conflict, do you? No, I, I don't think that the the solutions will, will be simple or that they're close at hand. But what you describe of uh, how close the proximity is between these 
people people like me who live right next to that wall, two miles away from that wall, pass it every day, how close we are in living a totally different existence from the people on the other side of it. I mean, when you're in this walled enclave, you can look through the opening between some of the, it's a very dense urban area. You can look through the you know um, openings between two buildings, and you're just looking at a different universe. You're looking at the settlement of Pizgatzaev. You're seeing green everywhere. You're seeing playgrounds. You're seeing single-family homes with red roofs, and and uh, these people are living in in you know the starkest contrast uh, to uh, to that, and so. The proximity is really a theme, but not proximity in the sense of um, uh, a solution is is within grasp. So you write that the vast majority of Israelis, uh, Jewish Israelis, go about their days and exist by ignoring the reality of what is going on. And now maybe the attacks of October 7th have thrust some of that reality upon them. But what if they didn't? Um, what if they really contemplated and really very much understood the da- the daily difficulties of life of the Palestinian? Do you think much would change? I think that um, we're about to find out because um, now, um, the, the after October 7th, the Palestinian issue is at the forefront of every Israeli mind. And the Palestinian issue has been... Uh, utterly neglected in Israeli politics in the past elections. It takes a, it, a backseat. It's not a central issue. And even in these huge uh, historic protests that were taking place uh, prior to October 7th against the government and the judicial reforms it was trying to put through, the Palestinian issue was totally marginal. So now we're going to see what it means for the Palestinian issue to be uh, central and uh, I do think it will make a difference. Now, of course, human beings are very good at justifying any situation that they find themselves in. And we have many uh, uh, psychological experiments that uh, show that. Um, so, so I don't have any doubt that there, there will be lots of justification uh, for the situation. But I do think that having being confronted with it Seeing it day in and day out really does make make a huge difference. The counter argument, by the way, are the settlers. The settlers don't get to ignore it. They are facing it. They are seeing the checkpoints. They're seeing the Palestinian communities right beside them. And they're able to ignore it despite the proximity uh, or justify it. Uh, or you know think that it's it's you know going to be resolved somehow and it's a temporary uh, and imperfect situation but what can you do we have no choice so I, I don't I don't want to discount how how possible it is for people to justify it but I do also think that a key pillar of the longevity of this system which has lasted more than half a century has been how well insulated ordinary Israelis have been. Uh, from it. Do you think it's one of those political questions that is pushed down and not prominent because there is no concern or because there is no solution? I think that um, there is a belief, a central uh, belief among Israelis that we have no choice. This is a slogan that you hear in Israeli politics, you know, we have no choice. And so 
Um, I think that's the the kind of the central uh, issue. And when Israelis do go and they go on trips to the West Bank and they're led on tours and they see it, you know, there is no denying that it's deeply unjust. And, um, and, and, you know, most of the time Israelis aren't forced to confront it. Yes, but this was even true of the United States. Well, during Jim Crow, during the 1960s, you could argue today, I'm just pulling on the United States. It's true of Canada and their First Nations. It's true of every society that has uh, shameful units with shameful situations within that they have to countenance in order to get through the day. And I know that you're saying that, but I wonder if you uh, obviously operate within a, a certain milieu. You're a celebrated man of letters. We know what your politics are within Israel. You probably, there are probably many people who you are friendly with and who love the book and who absolutely earnestly grieve for the plight of the Palestinians and maybe would, you know, criticize some of the more right-wing, certainly would criticize some of the more right-wing members of the government and Netanyahu himself. But they also, tell me if I'm wrong, these people, even in your circle, would say there is no other way. And they might know what's going on. There are people like that. Um, I I wouldn't say that they're really... Well, no, there are people uh, absolutely like that who who are, are uh, in my life, and um, you know, it's it's a very difficult thing to engage with them because they wind up being these historical debates that I have, and often at the end of those debates, they the people I speak with are convinced, and then the next day we come back, and it's as though the conversation didn't happen. So the 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 belief system is so deeply ingrained that um, it's really hard to undo. And I would just say that broadly speaking, you know, you're asking about solutions and Israeli perceptions of solutions, um, really uh, both on the left and on the right in Israel, um, there is this widespread belief that basically we have tried our best and the Palestinians just don't want to accept uh, the existence of Israel. And, you know, the, the, there is tremendous ignorance about the history of the conflict, the history of the negotiations, um, just the very fact that the Arab League had has offered since 2002, the League of Arab States, and along with the Palestinians, has offered since 2002 for a two-state solution with full recognition and peace with Israel, and reiterated that uh, offer over and over again, and the Israeli government has never responded to it. And this is an offer that, you know, it says two states along the 67 borders, and even on the refugee issue, which is one of the most intractable, they say a just and agreed solution to the refugee issue. And they they created this proposal. The reason they inserted the word agreed, it means agreed with Israel, meaning Israel is going to have a veto on it, and they're not going to change Israel's bottom line, which is they don't want to change the demography and lose uh, a Jewish majority. So just that basic fact that I just told you, the existence of this offer, Israel's non-response to it, um, is not known by most uh, by most Israelis. Now, it's also the case that most Israelis think that that offer is unreasonable. 
Now, why do they think that that offer is unreasonable? The Palestinians are half the population under Israel's control. Seven million Jews, seven million Palestinians. The vast majority of those Palestinians don't have basic civil rights. And this solution is proposing the Palestinians get a state on 22% of their historic homeland, and the Jews are going to get a state on 78%. Doesn't that sound like a good deal? But from the Israeli perspective, that doesn't sound like a good deal because the Israeli view, the mainstream Israeli view, is that the conflict is really about the occupation of Gaza in the West Bank that started in 1967. And if you hold that view, which is historically inaccurate, but if you hold that view and you think that the real issue to be resolved is this occupation that's lasted since 1967, then you think that the maximalist Palestinian position is to demand a full end of that occupation, a Israeli retreat to the lines of uh, May 1967, to the lines it had before the 1967 war. And so Palestinians getting 22% of their historic homeland looks like a maximalist position. And so as an Israeli, you come to it and you say, we're the stronger party. What negotiations ever took place in the history of the world where the stronger party comes in and gives the maximal uh, demand to the weaker party? But from the Palestinian perspective, uh, 22% was the concession. That was the historic compromise. They had their arm twisted for decades to accept this idea of a two-state solution, uh, to accept that Israel will exist in 78% of historic Palestine. And they finally, in 1988, came around and said, fine, we agree to a Palestinian state, a disconnected Palestinian state in Gaza and the West Bank on just 22% of the land. And that's, you know, our quote unquote, historic compromise. That's what it's known as in, in Palestinian society. But what happened subsequent to that in all of the negotiations is Israel comes to it and says, okay, that's your maximalist position. And now let's talk realistically about which settlements are going to stay within this, the 22%, how 80% of the settlers within the 22% are going to stay, how you're not going to really have a sovereign state, how we're going to take major parts of East Jerusalem, which is the most important part to you, which is part of the 1967 occupation, and on and on and on. And so I think that this huge disconnect of framing the conflict as about all of the historic conflict with Zionism going back to 1882 versus framing it as a conflict over the occupation that began in 1967, that has a lot to do with the impasse and the failure of all of these rounds of negotiations. And I would say that most of the world also shares the Israeli view of conceiving the conflict as really about the 1967 occupation. Do you think if Israel were to agree to that, they would be safe or they would be signing their death warrant? I definitely do not think Israel would be signing its death warrant uh, because, again, all of these proposals, they include essentially that the Palestinian state uh, is a giant demilitarized uh, zone. It would right, have but does, isn't Gaza uh, titularly or on paper a demilitarized zone and then you inject uh, $70 million of Qatari money and we see what the actual effect is? Yeah. No, it's, it's not. I mean, just to take a step back, it is definitely a peace agreement is no guarantee that there would not be violations and that there wouldn't 
be further further war. But the the question is, is when you said the word death warrant, um, there is no capability on the part of a future Palestinian state to annihilate uh, Israel or come anywhere close to annihilating Israel. Um, and, you know, Gaza was not a situation of creating, you know, withdrawing Israeli settlers in 2005 and creating an agreement where it's going to be a big demilitarized zone and we're going to turn it into Singapore. It was uh, a, a not done by agreement. It was a unilateral withdrawal of, of, of settlements and with an Israeli uh, effort to continue to control Gaza from the outside. And that effort obviously right. failed. And then a unilateral imposition of totalitarian rule by Hamas. Yeah. yeah but I, I mean, in fairness, I would say that there's one party rule in the West Bank in the areas that are governed by the Palestinian Authority there too. I mean, it's Hamas is not unique in that respect. It's uh, there's, there's a one party rule uh, uh, that's- Well, you write a lot about the Palestinian Authority, but not just in terms of export terrorism, but in terms of internally policing dissent, is, is there a big difference between those two groups? No, I, I think that, you know, the, the, your description of it as uh, totally undemocratic and, you know, even totalitarian uh, one-party rule in both places is correct. And we'll be back in a minute with more of Nathan Thrall. And we're back with Nathan Thrall. So you have said the oppressed have the right to resist. And it's been said, I don't know if you have said this, but you could tell me if you have, that Israel has a right to defend itself. Both seem true, idiomatic. And yet, when you tease it out, the oppressed have a right to resist. Well, what form of resistance is acceptable? And then I want to ask you about this. Israel's right to defend itself, what form of defense is acceptable? So those rights, while not being absolute, how much do they actually you know, inform the situation? Or is the situation just in the details of what you actually mean by those rights? Now, if you're talking about, you know, in general, the conflict between Palestinian armed groups and uh, Israel, I mean, the obligation of uh, everybody is to abide by the rules of uh, international humanitarian law, to abide by the rules of war and arms conflict. And so the killing of civilians is absolutely uh, forbidden, and there is just nothing uh, murky about that. But what about the right to defend itself? So, I mean, you know... If Israel doesn't violate international law, which plausibly is actually the case, there's a lot of subjectivity. It's odd that I am telling an expert like you this, but what is proportionality? While it can't target hospitals, it can strike at, for instance, a hospital or a school being used uh, as a military site. Um, Israel does a lot of, and they've been open with the press about all the um, research they do before dropping a bomb. Still, you have wildly disproportionate death tolls. So even if Israel doesn't violate and can't be hauled before the world court or ever actually proved to have violated an international law, I think the world would still look at the death toll and say Israel's doing something wrong. So um, one thing that's important to distinguish between is a situation in which um, 
a state is attacked by another uh, state, for example, Syria were to launch an attack on on Israel and what Israel were entitled to do, it would be entitled to do in that situation, uh, and a situation of uh, essentially an internal conflict. This is a the the a a war with a group that Israel is controlling within the uh, territory that has been under Israeli control for over half a century, and so um, the framing of this as uh, an interstate conflict and as though Hamas were some kind of you know sovereign state uh, attacking Israel is is obviously wrong. I mean, this is a, a an entirely different kind of situation. It's it's an occupation with an armed group fighting against Israel from the occupied territory. Um, now, uh, Israel, even prior to October 7th, uh, is, is uh, frequently um, violating the rules of IHL and you can, um, uh, international humanitarian law, and you can just read the reports of dozens of reports of the, of Israeli uh, human rights organizations that are documenting this day in and day out. And so with respect to the conflict uh, now uh, in, in Gaza, I mean, it, it, I don't know if you've, you've read these, these recent comparisons, but the uh, number of civilians killed, the number of women and children killed in the last seven weeks um, really exceeds uh, anything that we have seen in the last, uh, fr- from, okay, it exceeds the um, killing by U.S. and coalition forces in the first year of the war in Iraq. And it approaches the number of civilians killed uh, by the U.S. and its allies in Afghanistan in a a nearly 20-year period. So this is all happening in seven weeks. The scale of it is uh, enormous. And um, I don't think that anybody can argue that Israel has been uh, abiding by the the rules of proportionality um, in, in, in its behavior in the last, uh, seven weeks. Well, Israel argues it and there might be adjudications and there might not be, um, also the worst year for, uh, the conflict in Iraq was three years in and one side of the conflict is the U S and allied forces. If you look at civilian death tolls in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth year of that war, they were higher. And then if you take Wars like uh, Ethiopia and the Tigray region, there were many more people killed, Yemen. So yes, it's horrible. It is absolutely horrible. I don't, the, my point is not in to get into the detail, not to get lost in how horrible comparatively it is the greatest shame and horror that so many people are dying. But my question is, if it is true that Israel has a right to defense, are you saying that it doesn't have the right to this amount of defense or how it is defining defense as killing this many people is ipso facto against international law or something that Israel doesn't have a right to do. And then what's the implication of that? What's the implication of that for the continued operation of Hamas? It is, you know, absolutely clear to me that the degree of killing that we have seen the the and even, you know, frankly, the statements from Israeli officials saying 
we want to flatten Gaza. We are going to, you know, return Gaza to the Stone Age. We are doing another uh, Nakba. The military spokesperson um, saying that our uh, uh, goal is destruction, not precision. I mean, it's like they're giving, you know, testimony for that's going to be used in a in, in a in a future prosecution. I mean, uh, th- I, there's just I I feel like it's really unequivocal that Israel has exceeded uh, by orders of magnitude what is considered, what could be considered proportional. Um, Now, what are the implications uh, in terms of Hamas in Gaza? Israel has stated that its goal is to, quote unquote, eradicate Hamas. That goal is unattainable. So there's a question of capability, which is, you know, the, there is going to be increasing pressure on Israel to stop the war and even calling up these 300,000 reservists, uh, leaving all of these, uh, uh, some, you know, couple hundred thousand people are displaced within Israel and not returning to homes uh, in the north and in the Gaza border region. And the war itself is costing largely because of this call up of reservists, it's costing Israel about nearly $300 million uh, per day. So there is a question of how long Israel can continue just as a matter of uh, capability. But um, even if Israel were to be able to continue for months with this campaign, it is possible that Israel can severely degrade Hamas militarily. However, uh, Hamas exists not just in Gaza, it exists in the West Bank. It exists in the uh, diaspora. And if you look at the latest public opinion polling, it is several times uh, more popular than the next strongest party, Fatah, in both Gaza and the West Bank today. So you're asking about what the implications are. I think the big question is, how much is Hamas degraded militarily within Gaza? And will it be possible to think about putting some other kind of regime in place in Gaza at the end, I can tell you that the population of Gaza is not going to be thrilled about having the Palestinian Authority there. The uh, the, uh, uh, popularity of the Palestinian Authority is in the single digits uh, for Palestinians. They're seen as uh, totally complicit in the system of oppression that they're living under, uh, working hand in glove with Israel. And I don't see an Arab force that's going to be uh, willing to go into Gaza and have a mandate to shoot at Palestinians who want to resume fighting against Israel. The only situation that could plausibly result in a robust and long-term ceasefire would be to create a Palestinian state, would be to decommission all of the uh, militias to create a Palestinian state to give that for the U.S. to give security guarantees uh, to Israel, where any attack on Israeli soil uh, will be uh, 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 responded to by the United States, and to do you know in in two thousand um, uh, sixteen, the Obama administration put forward a very very uh, robust uh, plan for security for a future Palestinian state that was done by General Allen. And 
the U.S. would have to come in with an Allen plan on steroids and create a Palestinian state uh, for there to be a plausible answer to how are we not going to just see more and more of these rounds of bloodshed in Gaza. I don't see that as being in the cards at all. And so, you know, the real question is, are we going to have a continuation of Hamas rule in some form or Hamas existence as a military power inside Gaza, or are we not? Um, because uh, and, and in either, in, in any scenario, we're going to see continued rounds of bloodshed, um, whether it's from Hamas or other groups uh, is, is a different question. This is what, I'll just uh, give some of my clarifications or thoughts. One is when Avi Dichter or Elements in the government say ridiculous things about the Nakba, the destruction being revisited. That's horrible. I don't absolve the government from that because it was the government that allowed him to be agriculture minister, but he is a radical voice that doesn't speak for the majority of the Israeli defense forces. That's one. Two is, I'm glad you said they can, it's possible that they could seriously degrade Hamas. I don't know what destroy means, every last one, but I do think Israel can seriously degrade Hamas. I'm not sure what that means afterwards. Not sure that who will come in to rule Gaza, all legitimate points, but it is militarily achievable. And my question about the implications are, if the disproportionate death toll is such that it immediately defines Israel as engaged in an illegitimate action. What the implications to me is that a terrorist force can strike at Israel, have a significant death toll, then effectively use the tactic of human shielding and everything else they do, and essentially get away with it and and exist to threaten Israel the next time. But I'll give you all the caveats. I don't know what's going to come next. I don't know how seriously the degradation of Hamas can be. I know that it will come at literal costs and other costs. But you could say anything about that, but I, I do want to get to another issue in general. Okay. I mean, I just on the Dictor thing, he's not such a radical. I mean, he is one of the most popular politicians in the, the Likud. I shouldn't say radical. He's not such a fringe figure. Yeah. Uh, it's like you can make the same case about Marjorie Taylor Greene, who you can imagine if we were in a war would say insane things. Okay. But it, and, again, and should that he, mean that United States is guilty of a war crime? But Dictor is not alone. I mean, it's literally the spokesperson for the army is Marjorie Taylor Greene. But the, yeah. the army spokesperson who is supposed to be, you know, thinking about what he's saying said our goal is is, is destruction not precision. It's admitting mm -hmm. that we're being disproportionate, that we're not observing the the laws of war. So I, I, I don't... No, that doesn't... I mean, this is very semantic, but that doesn't mean that. It means that there are precision strikes and there are flattening um, targets with less precision and they're opting for more destruction, which can be covered by the rules of law. It's not that the rules of law only say that only precision laws are allowed, but... Well, I mean, it's a very densely populated area filled with civilians. So you're the saying that... The emphasis is on damage and not on accuracy. That is true. That, that that he he would lie if he were saying and is something to the contrary. I I think it is true that that's what they're doing, and I don't think that's what they should be doing. Yes, but I, that isn't necessarily a violation of the laws of war, and it couldn't be an effective military strategy. All right, when they're trying to kill a, a single person, 
and they flatten multiple buildings, you know, an entire block size area in Jabalia refugee camp. I don't remember what the death toll was from that bombing. That is not observing proportionality. Yeah, that's you have a good case on that. Do you think? Because uh, earlier you talked about how many, uh, many Jews, many Israeli Jews say we've done all we can, and they don't really pay attention to it. They don't really grapple with choices. Choices like allowing settlements for one, or there are two solutions. There's a one-state solution, a two-state solution. Will any solution truly allow Israel to be a Jewish state without being endangered constantly? Uh, yes, a, a, a two-state outcome would allow Israel to be a Jewish state. It would have a Jewish majority of roughly 75% uh, um, within that the state of Israel in 78% of historic Palestine. And the Palestinians would have uh, a state, according to all of the negotiations that have taken place so far, basically a demilitarized state with severe restrictions on its uh, sovereignty living alongside uh, Israel. That would uh, preserve Israel's security and allow Israel to uh, keep its bottom line, which is to have a uh, Jewish majority. And the Palestinians would accept this in terms of claims of the right of return or other claims that the uh, Jewish state of Israel, I mean, there are explicit claims that the Jewish state of Israel should be destroyed. This will be off the table you, in your estimation if those boundaries are agreed upon? So the Palestinians have repeatedly uh, stated and offered and negotiated with Israel uh, about exactly that. And, you know, President Abbas has told the Israelis that he is not going to impact them demographically with any kind of resolution of the refugee issue. Again, I, I mentioned the Arab League proposal. All the Arab states have said, we're ready to make peace with you fully tomorrow if you create a Palestinian state on the 67 borders and the refugee issue will be just and agreed. We use the word agreed de deliberately. Agreed meaning Israel agrees, meaning there's a veto by Israel on the refugee issue. So um, one, there are many things uh, that have gone wrong in these negotiations, but one thing no one can say is that the Palestinians have not agreed. The leaders of the PLO, the Palestinian National Movement, uh, have not agreed to a state on the 67 borders with a resolution of the refugee issue uh, that um, that Israel would have a, a veto over. The name of the book is A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. It is by Nathan Thrall, who was the Arab-Israeli Project Director at the International Crisis Group and is an acclaimed journalist. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you so much, Mike. And a final note here on The Gist, we have made and are making request after request for pro-Palestinian voices to appear on the show, to face the sort of non-withering, opposite of browbeating you just heard. So let me just list some of the experts we've gotten in touch with and reached out to. There was uh, Hafed Al-Gwell of Johns Hopkins. We were close. I think we're going to get there with him. But others were Rabad Abdelhabi of uh, San Francisco State University, Zaha Hassan of the Carnegie Endowment, Carnegie, Omar Shakir of Human Rights Watch, 
Hanan Ashrawi of the Palestinian Initiative for the Promotion of Global Dialogue and Democracy. No luck with any of them, but if you have some suggestions, please let us know. Someone who would be a qualified expert and also not mind engaging with some rigorous back and forth, email us at thegist at mikepesca.com. That's it for the show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson tries to get in touch with every Israel expert at every university in the United States. He's also the senior producer. The Gist features a director of special projects, and her name is Michelle Pesca. Not every podcast does. And we have a special project. It's tomorrow at 6 p.m., Village Underground. I shall be talking about Israel. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeepuru, Dupuru, and thanks for listening.